Welcome to this podcast, looking at the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on ongoing arbitral proceedings. Over the next 15 minutes, we are going to explore what arbitral institutions and other organisations have been doing to assist parties and arbitral tribunals through this difficult period. We are also going to share some practical tips from our recent experience on how to manage virtual hearings given the current restrictions on travel and social distancing. I'm joined today by Craig Tevendale, head of our International Arbitration Group in London, Patricia Nascimento, co-head of the German Dispute Resolution Team, and Catherine Sanger, partner in our Hong Kong office. Craig, Patricia and Kath each have roles at arbitral institutions and also sit as arbitrators, so they can give us multiple perspectives on this current situation. Craig, perhaps you can start us off. Can we set the scene by looking at what the standard international arbitration process looked like before COVID-19? Of course. Well, it's already the case that there are compelling reasons for the arbitration community to adopt new technologies to make the process more efficient and to cut down on cost. The result is that much of the standard process in an arbitration already takes place electronically. Most parties will commence an arbitration by email or by using an arbitral institution's filing platform, although that may be followed up by a hard copy of the filing. After the arbitration has been commenced, correspondence, pleadings, witness statements and expert reports will usually be exchanged by email or through an institution's electronic platform. Hard copies will not always follow and rarely as far as routine correspondence is concerned. The exchange of documents at the document production stage will usually be carried out by exchange of password-protected memory sticks, secure electronic file transfer, or through document review platforms. It's also standard practice for case management conferences to be run using virtual meetings, video conferencing, or simply over the phone. It's also an established practice, where the circumstances require it, for the cross-examination of some witnesses and experts to take place remotely. Now, it's not often done, but it is a recognised alternative, for example, where there are visa problems. The fact that travel to hearings is often required for some or all of those involved means that electronic document storage, trial presentation and electronic bundling are a practical option for many arbitrations, although some practitioners and arbitrators do still prefer to use hard copy hearing bundles. But whilst parties, counsel and arbitrators might embrace technology throughout the process, most arbitrations will still culminate in a face-to-face substantive hearing on the merits. That will take place in a hearing venue in an agreed location and it will be attended by counsel, arbitrators, party representatives, witnesses, experts, and it will be recorded typically by a stenographer or court reporter. Quite a cast list, really, to assemble in the one place. Thanks, Craig. Now, with that background in mind, we move on to talk about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Kath, perhaps I can turn to you now. Clearly, the current global circumstances have created an unprecedented need for arbitral institutions to adapt at very short notice to new and different ways of working, and offer solutions to parties and practitioners that will enable disputes to continue to be resolved in a time of lockdown and enforced social distancing. Can you share with us in quite general terms what that means for ongoing and future arbitral proceedings? Yes, of course. There hasn't been any strong motivation to move to virtual merits hearings or fully electronic proceedings before, and clearly that motivation has now presented itself, 
And it has, I think, led to an unprecedented period of change and adaptation in arbitration, just, of course, as it has across the globe in so many sectors and businesses. Many arbitral institutions and other organisations responded to the COVID-19 situation quickly. All of the leading arbitral institutions and bodies involved in ad hoc proceedings, like the LMAA and GAFTA, have now issued their own specific guidance. In general terms, all of that guidance mirrors that of many of the national courts around the world, that delaying the resolution of disputes is not really a practical option in such uncertain times. And it is up to the parties, council, judges and arbitrators to find solutions to keep things moving. To that end, all the major arbitral institutions issued a joint statement on the 16th of April this year, encouraging parties and arbitrators to engage constructively with each other in these challenging times. Thanks, Kath. Now, uh, as a firm, we're keeping an eye on the guidance issued by all the major arbitral institutions and updating our blog piece weekly on this topic at www.hsfnotes.com forward slash arbitration. Rather than going into an institution by institution detail, Kath, would you be able to give us a high level overview of what institutions are doing to facilitate socially distanced dispute resolution? I can, Vanessa. I mean, the first obvious practical issue is that institutions have staff and they themselves need to comply with the national legislation regarding lockdowns or social distancing. That means that most institutions have closed their offices and moved to remote working arrangements for all or a majority of their employees. But all the institutions have a consistent message, and it's that it is business as usual in terms of institutional administrative support, just as it is for the businesses who use them to resolve their disputes. Clearly, if there are limited staff attending offices in person, then that means moving away from hard copy filing and correspondence. Almost all institutions now permit or require requests and notice of arbitration to be filed via email for the duration of the pandemic, while some, like ICSID, SCIA and DIS, have continued to accept hard copies using ad hoc arrangements. Other methods of receiving such requests include fax, USB, and that's CRCICA, and bespoke portals, and that's AAA, ICDR, LCIA, the SCC, and FINRA. Some institutions have even developed interim procedures relating to payments and the transmission of awards. Thanks, Kath. Now, once the arbitration has been commenced, the practical procedure will usually be determined by the arbitral tribunal together with the parties. Here, as Craig, you mentioned, operating via electronic means for much of the process has been fairly standard practice. Am I correct that this is continuing? Yes, very much so. Our experience around the network so far is that there hasn't been much change to the day-to-day conduct of the arbitration. Most of our procedural hearings are going ahead virtually, so it's business as usual in that respect. Some are by telephone conference, but we're also seeing a number run through Skype for business, Zoom and other video conferencing facilities. Whilst those hearings are generally working very effectively, there have been a few that have presented challenges to our team recently. And that's particularly been the case where individuals involved in the hearing are dialing in from locations with limited internet connectivity or without up-to-date technology at their immediate disposal. I've also had my first experience as an arbitrator in signing and issuing a final award for an arbitral institution under the new remote procedures. It was very straightforward. So for parties who've already held their hearings and are waiting for their awards to be issued, I don't see any cause for undue concern in the current situation. 
That's good news. And Craig, your comment about the challenges that can be experienced in virtual procedural hearings leads us on to quite nicely talking about substantive merits hearings and whether those are proceeding virtually. What's the picture there? Well, that presents more of a mixed picture, Vanessa. As we've all been very much aware at a personal level, things have been moving very quickly. Only a few weeks ago, the merits hearing for one of my matters was postponed from the spring until the autumn of this year. On one view, the parties were perhaps fortunate to have got in early on the postponement in terms of fixing diaries, because we're now seeing a logjam of rescheduled hearings running into Q4 2020 in the first half of 2021, with limited availability for many tribunals. But on the other hand, if the hearing were to have been scheduled just a few weeks later than the original date, I think there would have been more pressure on the tribunal to hold the existing dates and to run the hearing virtually. I'd agree with that, Craig. In fact, I was scheduled to sit as an arbitrator in a case again a few weeks ago, and there were plans for the tribunal to congregate together, socially distanced in a room that was large enough to hold us, with the parties and the witnesses attending virtually. But events somewhat overtook us and national lockdowns derailed even that plan, meaning the parties asked for a postponement. As we've become more accustomed to lockdown and home working globally in recent weeks, and also acknowledge that this may be a new normal for many months, the parties may have been keener to agree to a fully virtual hearing. We shall see what circumstances require as we approach the rescheduled date uh, later this year. Thanks, Kath. And as you say, the situation is evolving very quickly. But it does certainly look as though many of the parties with hearings scheduled for the next few months, at least, will need to give real thought to whether a virtual hearing can work for them. That's an interesting point, actually, Vanessa. I've had some very recent experience in the first virtual hearing held before the English High Court, with counsel, witnesses and experts participating from five different jurisdictions. In a national court, obviously, the balance of decision-making is very different. If a judge tells you at short notice that you will need to proceed with a virtual hearing and that they will not grant an adjournment, you will have to get on and hold that virtual hearing. In arbitration, the process is one based on party consent. The arbitral institution and the tribunal may very strongly encourage the parties to continue with the hearing. But they are very unlikely to order the parties to have a full merits hearing virtually if a party is deeply opposed to it. But it is very much worth thinking through the decision to oppose a virtual hearing. There may obviously be very good reasons for doing so, and I'd recommend looking at Appendix 1 to the Delos checklist. This lists some of the considerations that might influence a party's decision whether or not to agree to postpone the hearing instead of substituting a virtual hearing for an in-person one. However, if the concerns are technical, many of these can be overcome with the help of service providers who are on a very steep learning curve alongside parties and practitioners. It is also worth factoring in the expense of preparing for a hearing that doesn't happen the impact on witnesses' recollection and postponing their evidence, and the continuing uncertainty in not having a dispute settled. It may also not be that easy to fix a date if you postpone. Many arbitrators have calendars that might already be quite full for later in the year or in 2021, and they might be reluctant to push back those hearings to make room for current cases 
that actually could be resolved virtually. Thank you, Patricia. You mentioned the DLOS checklist. CAF, what's that checklist? And are there other resources out there that might assist parties thinking about a virtual hearing? Uh, yes, DELOS is an arbitral institution and in mid-March they produced a checklist on holding arbitration and mediation hearings in the current situation. It has been very well received and indeed is referred to by other institutions like the SCC. However, it is only one of a number of very helpful pieces of guidance and checklists produced by arbitral institutions and other dispute resolution bodies. In a short podcast, it is hard to name them all, but there is the ICC's guidance note, which includes suggested clauses to incorporate in cyber protocols and procedural orders and checklists to assist parties in dealing with the logistics of holding such hearings. The sole protocol and video conferencing is another piece of guidance in international arbitration. Here in Hong Kong, where I'm based, the HKIC is partnering with leading technology specialists to offer a range of virtual hearing services, and they have put together an e-hearing inquiry form as a way of offering bespoke practical guidance to parties. There has also been some helpful guidance on ad hoc proceedings from leading bodies like the LMAA. All of these are worth a look for anyone considering how to approach a virtual hearing. I also wouldn't discount the publications from national courts who are also grappling with similar issues. All guidance and learning is helpful in these times. Given the sensitivity of many arbitrations, anyone considering a truly virtual arbitration will also want to have made sure that cyber security is maintained throughout that any personal data is only processed in ways that are compatible with applicable laws. The ICA NYC bar CPR protocol on cybersecurity and international arbitration and the consultation draft of the ICA IBA joint task force roadmap on data protection in international arbitration, both released earlier this year, offer helpful suggestions to maintain cybersecurity and comply with data protection requirements in any arbitration, however conducted. Further guidance is expected to be issued in the coming weeks by a collaboration group of large international law firms set up and led by Herbert Smith Freehills LLP in consultation with arbitration institutions and technology providers, addressing both the characteristics and the functionality that parties should require of the tools they use for the exchange of data online in their proceedings. Thanks, Kath. Now, Patricia, if I could return to you, you've obviously been through a virtual substantive hearing now, albeit in the court, and will have a good sense of what worked and what didn't. Might you be able to share any tips with us and any lessons that you've learned? Of course. In my view, the biggest consideration and the most important one to get right has to be the choice of platform for the hearing. You want something that is tried and tested resilient, can work on multiple devices and operating systems, and that can be accessed and function globally. There are a lot of potential options out there. The ICC, SCC, GEMS, AAA, ICDR are using or proposing the use of commercially available services like FaceTime, Skype, Video Cloud, Microsoft Teams or Zoom, while other institutions are offering more bespoke services. Examples being SIAC in collaboration with Maxwell Chambers, virtual ADR service, ICSIT's video conferencing platform, GEMS and Dispute TM mediation platform, and the ICDR collaboration with Opus 2. This latter option includes the provision of a virtual hearing manager who deals immediately with any technological hitches. Whatever you choose, I'd strongly suggest it is based on a good understanding of that platform's fullest functionality. 
excluding a platform on the basis of security concerns may be entirely valid, but it's always worth investigating whether there are ways to limit security concerns. For example, by using waiting rooms and certain platforms where individuals have to be admitted and cannot just instantly enter the room. I'd also stress the importance of understanding what hardware is needed. Most issues in virtual meetings and conferences are down to an individual's own IT and their internet connection. Explaining what is needed, providing parties with rented IT if required, suggesting using wired rather than wireless connections, providing 4G dongles to use the cellular network if a domestic connection is insufficient. These are all easy steps that can be taken to improve the experience of a virtual hearing. It is also worth thinking about the quality of your video equipment, lighting and background, particularly for any advocate and the arbitral tribunal where facial expression is important. The next issue has to be documents. Here there are lots of options and which one is right will depend entirely on the number of documents, the size of the case and the resources available to you. Some arbitration matters will be very high value with large numbers of documents. And for those matters, there may already be an agreed management case system like Opus 2 Magnum, which can be used for bundles of relevant documents. But these options can be expensive. It might make sense if you have access to repo services to produce hard copy bundles or a low cost electronic option is an OCR enabled PDF. Electronic trial presentation may be included in a case management system, but there are also very good and zero cost ways of presenting documents to a witness and arbitrators simply by sharing a screen through many of the video conferencing platforms. Again, hardware is critical. If you want parties to the hearing to be able to watch the conference platform and look at documents, they will need a big enough screen to do so or a number of devices. Witnesses and experts are a big concern for many clients, but it is important to remember that many commercial courts and arbitral tribunals have managed cross-examination via video conferencing now for many years. A good advocate and a seasoned arbitrator will not be worried by that prospect. It is obviously important that witnesses have access to the documents they need and are aware of their duties to the tribunal, particularly in not discussing their evidence during any breaks. An international arbitration might also mean having participants and witnesses from across the globe on different time zones, so a healthy dose of flexibility in the timetable is very advisable. Clients may also be worried about witnesses or experts who will be giving their evidence in their native language and will require a translator. Again, this is not an unsurmountable issue. With enough notice and the right kit, Simultaneous translation is still an option, or a lower tech option has the translator as a member of the video conference translating sequentially. And clearly that needs thought and agreement by the parties on delivering clear, concise questions and answers, but it is entirely manageable. The same is true of court reporting services. 
This can all be delivered as if the stenographer were in a standard hearing. And finally, communication. Merits hearings will usually have breakout rooms for different parties and their counsel and for the arbitral tribunal to share thoughts and strategy. When involved in a face-to-face -face hearing, counsel team will pass down notes to each other during cross-examination. These are critical aspects of a hearing and somehow need to be recreated. Again, there are many options. WhatsApp distribution lists, virtual breakout rooms within conferencing platforms. All of these would achieve the same end and they might even be more efficient and easier. Thanks, Patricia. That's incredibly helpful. So your feedback seems to be that most concerns can be managed by research and collaboration by the parties, council and arbitrators. I'd agree with that, Vanessa. We're all operating a new environment, but there's nothing groundbreaking about the proposition that hearings are more efficient when they're well run. Having an agreed protocol that sets out questions of timetable, how to deal with interruptions, how to ask and answer questions and so on, will be very valuable and hopefully prevent many avoidable problems. The guidance and the checklists available already are very helpful in coming up with a protocol that works for each individual case. Craig, Patricia, Kath, thank you all very much indeed for your time. Some really helpful insight into how arbitral institutions have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic and some very practical tips on managing a virtual hearing. The next few months will be a time of real learning and innovation for practitioners and also for service providers keen to offer the best platforms for virtual hearings. It remains to be seen whether our experiences of virtual hearings will make parties, council and arbitrators more inclined to consider them as options once the pandemic has passed. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Please do sign up to the HSF Arbitration blog for more news and insight on this and other arbitration-related issues.